0: psychology nerds welcome to psychology and stuff the podcast out of phoenix studios at the university of wisconsin green bay we are back for episode three of our special series on the 1961 bobo doll studies by dr albert bandura and others today we are going to talk about why this study still matters before we get to any of that though we want to tell you once more about psych week the day this comes out which is when you are most certainly listening to it because you've been waiting with bated breath for this episode this is day four of psychology week brought to you by bell and psychiatric center it's the week of march 25th to the 29th we've had in-person and online content all week long that includes our psychology spark sessions in downtown green bay the side talks which were held last night you can find them online down the road our volunteer night tonight now here's the thing if you miss that stuff it's okay because much of it will be re-released online. You just need to go to uwgb.edu slash psychweek to find all of our online programming. You can also find it on UWGB's psych Facebook page or Twitter to check it out. Uh, Go and check it out, excuse me. And all of this is made possible by Bellin Psychiatric Center, providing top-quality inpatient, outpatient, and addiction treatment services for individuals from across the region. Again, you can learn more about all of this at the psychweek website uwgb.edu slash psychweek. So my co-host for this journey, we've talked, I've introduced you a gajillion times mm-hmm. at this point, Taylor, so we don't need to do it again other than to say you're amazing and I've appreciated uh, everything about this, senior psychology and human development major, minor music, Taylor Gulbrand, How's it going, Taylor? Great. Good. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how his work applies across subfields. And you brought up something interesting to me (laughs) that is going to be 100% off my radar because uh, Fortnite is the the point at which I got old uh, because I do not understand it. I have Mm -hmm. actually tried to figure it out. All I know is my kids come and mention it to me, which, by the way, they are not allowed to play this. Mm -hmm. They come and mention it to me. They talk about it. Mm -hmm. They explain to me that it apparently involves guns and dancing. I don't really get it. So can you explain it?
1: Uh, I mean, I don't really play it either, but...
0: You need to make me feel less old right <laughs> now. Am I explained um, it
1: <laughs> From what I have heard from the youths of today,
0: <laughs> youths. Okay. Uh,
1: it's sort of a battle royale uh, shooting game where you're split into teams and then you got to exterminate basically the other team so you can okay. win, and then when you win, you just do these crazy cool dances.
0: Okay, so that's how the dancing comes in.
1: Yes, I'm pretty sure.
0: Yeah, <laughs> sounds good, okay. So it. And our producer is nodding along, yes. She's obviously a Fortnite expert. Yes. We probably should have brought mm-hmm. her on. You play it, do you? Oh, oh okay. her husband plays it. Outstanding. <laughs> does, I need to ask, does he do the dances? Oh, he's very
1: good at them. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> All right.
0: So apparently her husband does the dances, is very good at them. Um, so how does this apply?
1: Well, I was just thinking about um, how mass media sort of influences people and I thought a lot about the Fortnite dances because I worked with kids this past Mm. semester um, in a school and I swear every time I look at someone they're either flossing, they're orange justicing, (laughs) they're doing some other things and I just thought it was really interesting to sort of think about how um, video games and things like that really not infiltrate but sort of get into people's right. minds as they play them and then I started mm-hmm. thinking about YouTube videos um, my roommates watch a lot of YouTube videos so that sort of dawned on me too um, watching people play video games and right. things like that
0: yes yeah I can see that and see how I mean it certainly so I, I probably have witnessed plenty of Fortnite dances that <laughs> I just didn't realize mm-hmm. were Fortnite probably. dances so you mentioned flossing mm-hmm. my kids floss
2: all the time. Professionally,
0: it seems like mm-hmm. uh, nonstop. My my oldest is actually pretty darn good at it, and uh, and it it happens all the time. I didn't know that was a Fortnite thing.
1: So. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I I used to floss out of like to be ironic, and now I just kind of do I it all the time, it. Nice. and I, <laughs> I hurt Very my. It, it hurts inside when <laughs> I do it. <laughs>
0: I think it's pretty cool. So awesome. All right. So when we come back, Taylor is going to interview me about how Bandura's work applies to the study of emotion.
1: So you are an emotion researcher. So how does this modeling um, sort of apply to Mm -hmm. emotions?
0: Yeah. So it's it's actually really interesting. So first of all, a, a very simple kind of golden rule of emotional development is that Um, kids whose parents display positive emotions tend to display positive emotions kids whose parents display a lot of negative emotions tend to display a lot of negative emotions you know and so (laughs) it's this um, and really a lot of that stems from modeling now what makes emotion really interesting is that there are aspects of emotional expression that are built in right that are innate that have evolutionary value that you see across cultures so Kids tend to, or not kids, um, that, that across cultures you tend to see things like, you know, when people are angry, their brows furrow, right? They purse their lips. Um, and and you see those in animals too, right? We call them threat gestures. It's a way of conveying or communicating to people that um, that they are, uh, that, that someone is angry. Um, but at the same time, and, and the same thing, like smiles typically mean happiness, tears mean sadness. Mm-hmm. We all, often that one's a little more complicated, but, you know, we see some relatively... Uh, universal expressions of emotion but at the same time we also see some cultural differences um, some things that uh, are learned with regard to how people express their emotions and um, this really there's two ways that modeling uh, is part of that one is that so we refer to those differences as display rules and so what that means is that different cultures kind of have different rules and I'm putting that in quotes even though people can't see it Um, But those different rules about what is an appropriate way to express emotions. And this is where you'll find some things like gender differences with regard to crying and tears and things like that. And those are learned behaviors, and they're typically learned by what kids see and the modeling that happens from parents and others. Um, And so because I don't, you know, especially at an early age, kids aren't necessarily – scolded for crying, right? Mm-hmm. And so it isn't a reward-punishment piece, but it's often a, a thing that they notice over time that, you know, uh, that my dad tends to be a little more stoic about emotions and doesn't tend to express them or tries to hide them more than my mom does, and therefore they pick up at an early age that I, I you know, if I'm a boy, I shouldn't cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a, a lesson that they learn. A lot of times, very, very indirectly, right? And so, it's across cultures we see this phenomenon that boys tend to cra- cry less than girls. But of course, when we're talking about infants, they cry at the same rate. Yeah. That happens over time that they that they learn these differences, and they learn that typically through modeling. Um, similarly, um, kind of there are some cultural differences with regard to how um, embarrassment is expressed. Um, whether or not it's okay to show strong emotions like anger versus sadness, things like that across genders. Um, and a lot of that, while there are certainly rewards and punishments, right, where people are punished for expressing anger in certain mm-hmm. ways or for, for crime, a lot of that, though, happens just by witnessing the, the, the people around you. So, um, and so that's, a, uh, that's one big piece are these display rules. The other thing that happens, or related to that, is a phenomenon called social referencing. And so, what happens here is that when kids are unsure about an object or a situation, they look to their caregivers for help. You know, and they so if you know a, a child is um, uh, you know encounters an unfamiliar toy or an unfamiliar person, and they're unsure whether or not it's safe. They will look to caregivers, and if caregivers look scared, then they don't approach that thing. If caregivers look comfortable, then they do. And they actually, test this out through a fairly interesting study. It's called a, a visual cliff design, right? So what they do is they take this cool this table, mm-hmm. and it's got a glass top. Part of it is very shallow, you know, and it's just a it looks like a just a regular table. And then there's a deep part, and the deep part it, again, it's glass. So a child can't fall through, but you might be more scared on the on the in the deep part and they take young kids you know who are essentially crawling mm-hmm. caregivers on the other side and calls them over and apparently uh, what we find is that kids make the decision about whether or not to cross in part based on parents' expressions and so if parent seems nervous, then child is doesn't cross if parents like you know cool about this and it feels like it's safe than mm-hmm. child does so think about that think about um phobias um you can think about how those are passed on people always ask me well so how i've never i'm scared of spiders but i've never had a bad experience with a spider right? i've never been mm-hmm. attacked by them why or i'm scared of flying but i've never had and a lot of times what happens is that they pick up on those fears in these subtle ways right you see mom or dad Always scared of spiders, right? You see them kind of flinching when they see them, things like that. You see, even if mom and dad are trying to hide it, you see that when you're up and out in a high place that they're clutching you a little harder. You pick up on that fear, and then you you internalize that fear. Um, there's a lot of psychological principles at play here. I mean, it is there's some conditioning for sure, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of it is just simple modeling. I see mom and dad scared, and I embrace that fear
1: very cool do you have anything else to add
0: not really i think i just go back to that um kind of golden rule about uh about the the way in which parents express emotions and just how kids pick up on that one of the things i always think as a parent is even when i'm scared of stuff i try to hide that Mm -hmm. um you know i tried because not because i'm i'm ashamed of admitting fear but because i don't want my kids to pick up on on fear, uh, on that fear, and internalize that. I do the same thing with food, by the way. I hate mushrooms, but I routinely eat them in front of my kids, just so they don't learn to pick up on that hatred of mushrooms as well. Nice. So, yeah, I've now tricked my son into thinking I like them, and but he likes them too. Oh. So I'll be like, I guess I'll let you have my mushrooms, you know, and then he eats them. Genius. I know. I know. It was awesome. When we come back, we are going to talk with Dr. Georgina Wilson Dungas about how this work applies to conservation efforts. <music> All right, so we are here now with Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungis, who is a social ecologist. She is a statistician. She teaches environmental psych, conservation psych. She's been on the show plenty of times before. How's it going, Georgina?
2: Fantastic.
0: Uh, we are super, super glad you are here um, to talk a little bit with us about uh, BoO about, uh, and what it means in your line of work.
1: Yeah, so one thing we're asking all of our guests is to uh, talk about when you first learned about
2: the Bobo doll study. Well, I was actually a psychology undergrad okay. major before I became a social ecologist, and so I I am a hundred percent sure I learned about uh, the Bobo studies uh, when I was an undergrad. But I really don't think I ever thought about it as much as I've thought about it since. We here at UWGB Psych Department, since we have um, acquired an actual <laughs> life-size Bobo doll, uh, there you go, he's <laughs> in the studio with us uh, today. We've been bringing and
0: him for every, uh, for every interview. In fact, people will get to see pictures of, of Bobo in the room for all mm-hmm. of
2: these. Well, there you go. So um, since he's a presence, up in the uh, maxi wing uh, and randomly placed around sometimes. I think I've thought a lot more about the Bobo doll studies and also maybe what I might have done if I were in that study, oh. having seen him live.
0: And you know, I, I don't know if this is the right time to tell people this, but this is actually our second Bobo. Oh. it's kind of like the goldfish uh, <laughs> that we that. Had. One day. Uh, I think last year I came into the office. He had been at an event that I wasn't really at, and he came back, and he was just laying on the floor of my (laughs) office, completely deflated. (laughs) And I blew him back up, thinking, well, maybe they just, like, emptied him out uh, (laughs) somehow, and uh, it didn't work. Um, He he stayed that way for a couple hours, and then he was back on the floor. So I quickly got another one, and... um, and disposed of all of the remnants <laughs> as I flush it down the toilet of the, the, the Metcalfe Sea Wing. And um, yeah, so this is our second Bobo. But I did not know that. Yeah, I was pretty sad. Um, and it, And no one really, and when I mentioned it to admissions, they got kind of defensive because they thought, like, well, maybe they were the one. I thought they had popped him. And I was like, well, no, I think he just had a slow leak. And, you know, like, I think that happens, right? And so. Anyways, I think they were all worried. They're like, you know, what he was—he was inflated when we dropped him off at your office, and I was like, eh,
2: I believe Until you. Until we started punching him. Yeah. Then, <laughs> yes. I don't know what happened after that. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. So this is our second Bobo. Bobo two, we'll call him. But anyways, so, so, in the spirit of of talking about all this, how does? Uh, yeah. I mean, you you mentioned that you started kind of thinking about it once he, more once he became a presence. In what ways does this? apply to some of the work that you do or some of the things you teach about in your courses?
2: Well, one of the things I uh, was thinking a lot about is how in the the conservation psychology world, how we use modeling uh, to try and change people's behaviors, and specifically change their conservation behaviors to be more sustainable. And I was thinking, what a great example of celebrity modeling because mm-hmm. I think we all probably off the top of our heads right now could think of at least one celebrity who is uh, famous for pitching a conservation message. Can you mm-hmm. think of one?
0: I know which one you're thinking of. Uh, I always think <laughs> of that. Be- Because I know you well. That would be Leonardo
2: DiCaprio. Can you think yeah. of, of any others off the top of your head? I should have primed you for that. Yeah. Oh.
0: I am not, but I think it's because I'm on the spot. I bet as All soon right. as we start talking about others, be oh, like,
2: "Oh yeah, of course."
0: Yeah. Oh, um, Al Gore. Oh yes. yeah, of course. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> there you <we> go.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> so. Or if you think about um, people who are uh, trying to protect animals, uh, like elephants, like mm-hmm. I think of Ellen DeGeneres uh, spends a lot of uh, time and money promoting uh, the preservation of animals, mm-hmm. and so I think. Uh, there has been some interesting research about how using celebrities to model conservation Mm -hmm. behaviors uh, comes as kind of a mixed bag. And um, that mixed bag is that uh, if a celebrity picks a certain cause, like Leonardo DiCaprio um, is definitely 100% behind climate change kind of research and supporting those kinds of conservation behaviors, that a celebrity um, creates a buzz about a topic mm-hmm. and people are engaged with that topic, saving the elephants, saving the rhinos, you know, saving the oceans, something like that. Um, but it doesn't translate into <laughs> changing their own personal behavior uh, because they don't get the knowledge that they need to actually change their own personal behavior. And so they may be more likely to be engaged about why we should save the ocean and how like Leo's Oceana Hmm. fundraising efforts, why we should contribute money to that. But when it comes to me um, wanting to get some water and I think, wow, I'm just gonna go to the vending machine and I'm gonna get this plastic bottle of water because it's convenient to me. It doesn't actually change people's behavior on the ground in their daily lives. And so I think that that is a really interesting thought to think about modeling on a celebrity level versus modeling that I can do with, you know, let's say my students in the conservation site class where we could actually do something on the ground, a daily behavior that I could um, suggest ways in which you could change your personal right. daily behavior, which may make a larger impact in the end.
0: So I wonder if the message were tweaked from whether it's Leonardo or any, any of the people we're talking about, if the message were tweaked a little bit to be less, this is why it's important to be, here are the things I do. If that would somehow change the way people perceive that message, that if it, if it was, you know, I... You know, never buy bottled water. I, you know, and they actually um, kind of pitch the message that way. If that might change it, what do you think?
2: I I definitely think that that would make a difference. But I feel like celebrities are at such a a mega level that the things that they do on a daily basis are. Yes. I'm giving five million dollars to do this, and I don't think. That they that they think mm-hmm. about downgrading their right. activism to a level like that because they have the ability to upgrade their activism.
0: Well, Leonardo, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, <laughs> this is an opportunity for us to pilot this, right? So just try and, you know, get a couple of, of shots of you picking up paper in the street or drinking from a, a reusable water.
2: Thing. yeah there you go
0: that works right i think Sorry. i think
2: it works perfectly mm-hmm. but i think it's an interesting thought because i think it's not only conservation mm-hmm. um that uses celebrities to try oh, and, of course yeah and market something change people's behaviors in some ways and i you know i think that this could be a, a relatively larger mm-hmm. conversation well,
0: and I think you could. I mean, we could think about this in terms of you know the the relatively modern uh, topic of influencers, right? Whether it's you know or social media influencers and the role they play now in in marketing things mm-hmm. and how so much of that is rooted in the idea that they're um, that they're they're not celebrities. They're supposed to be relatively regular people i mean i think they turn into celebrities but relatively regular people who just have a lot of fans and a lot of followers and you get a chance to see them doing things that you could potentially do and and maybe that's a more uh sort of savvy approach to dealing with this i mean maybe that's what conservation efforts need (laughs) is less like check out me at this awesome hotel and more check out me saving the planet in some way
2: yes and i agree that Uh, A lot of social media influencers are recording whatever they're uploading from their home. Mm -hmm. It is a great, great uh, chance to do something regular like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Even a celebrity Mm -hmm. um, at home using a reusable water bottle and just saying it Mm -hmm. in their 30-second video that they're posting today Could impact it greatly, and I think that's a a terrific opportunity.
0: Very good. Anything else as we finish up here?
2: I just I think that changing people's behaviors is hard, Mm -hmm. and so using a modeling approach, just like any other approach, is never one hundred percent effective. And I think we know that as Mm -hmm. psychologists. Uh, So setting goals for how much behavior change you would like to see and being realistic about that is also important. Like you're Mm -hmm. not going to be able to save the planet, Mm -hmm. but maybe you could save your corner of the planet.
0: You know, I once, I think I saw it on a TED Talk, but I don't actually know if that's where it was or not. But I saw something about how the best way or one of the best ways to get people to use less electricity is to tell them how much electricity their neighbors use, and that it was a really effective way of basically saying, you know, your neighbors are only spending this much, and that that somehow essentially really communicated uh, to them, like, oh, I could, you know, it sort of brought in that competitive piece, you know, that sort of keeping up with the the neighbors.
2: So that actually Comes from a, a TED talk uh, by Alex Lasky. Oh, it was I a used, TED talk? Yes. Dude, my memory is that solid. I in a <laughs> conservation <laughs> psychology class, so. and so all you conservation psych folk out there, you've watched nice. that video, so I'm you
0: know. S- so I'm really going to test my memory. Is it Opower? Is that the the organization? We don't know. Okay. I don't know. Okay. okay. Somebody check that out and then get back to me. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) All you
2: conservation psych people, do it. (laughs)
0: Very good. Awesome. Any other final thoughts before we call it a day? Bobo, do you have anything you want to add? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so very much for being here, Georgina. This has been really fascinating. In a moment, we're going to talk once more with Dr. Regan A. R. Garung, but this time more specifically about how Bandura's work applies to health behaviors. We are back with Dr. Regan A. R. Garung to talk about how Bandura's work applies to health behaviors. Welcome back, Regan. How's it going?
3: Pretty good. Pretty good. Good.
0: So let's talk through this. you know, tell us a little bit about how this work is relevant in your like specific area here at health
3: So I I I think this is a a great time to talk about, you know, we talk about the the Bobadol study and uh, uh, intro psych, you hear about the Bobadol study. And I think if you, I think the key here, a really key moment for people listening is when you think about the Bobadol study, what do you think about? Do you think about, oh, kids see somebody being aggressive and they're aggressive? Well, let's not forget that there's a really important Piece there which is it's not just that they see kids being aggressive and they aggressive it's if an aggressive adult or an aggressive act is reinforced mm-hmm. then it's more likely to be i mean that, and that's a key part of observational behavior there so starting there you go well well what else happened and uh, you know in, in the other podcast we talked about uh, Al Bandura at MPA and one of the things I loved about his MPA distinguished Psychi, uh speaker address is that he talked about the implications of the Bobo doll study and I'll be quite honest I mean you know I, I always used to think about the doll study and, and I didn't really say hey what helped, what happened after that mm-hmm. and here's where in one of the best examples of basic research being used, you see what happened since, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Ryan, you mentioned uh, some of the 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 pushback. Right, way back in the 60s, but let's move to the 70s, let's move to the 80s. And one of the things he'd actually mentioned to us at dinner was that since the Bobadal study, he got approached and actually still does get approached by people from all over the world. And the story that stuck up, which featured to a large part and answers your application question, is he decided to use the vehicle of telenovelas. And he was approached by a Mexican... Uh, TV company, and they decided to script TV novellas where they could model behavior and model health behaviors that they wanted people to do. So they literally scripted these TV novellas where they had uh, older adults going and getting health checkups, older adults who had symptoms, who instead of staying around and not doing anything with it, would go in and get checked. And what is neat, it's so, so here you have a basic theory, right? Are, you know, the Bobo Doll study showing observational learning. Then you take that and you apply it to a real-world setting, right? But that's not all. He tests it. And what he showed us was changes in older adults in the Mexico viewing areas that saw this TV novella and increases in going to the doctor. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, and we're talking, you see these graphs where it's before the TV novella and then with every episode and there's a nice linear increase where they're watching it and then they're going, hey, the, you know, the, the characters are doing this stuff and they're actually going in and doing it. So that is the neatest thing to see this. And, and he was side by side working with the script writer, working with the, yeah, the script writer, working with the director. Uh, apparently he was on set a few times just to make sure that it was, you know, going according to the theory. And I think that's just, you don't see enough of that in psychology where you see some, you know, this basic research from a lab then going into the real world and making a difference, you know, more adults. I mean, and as a health psychologist, I can tell you, one of the big issues that we have is recognition of symptoms. You know, so often we have symptoms and we we, we don't recognize it or we want, don't want to uh, Then there's a delay in going into the doctor. Then there's adherence issues where the doctor may tell us something but we don't do what she says you know and we, we don't adhere and at, e- at each one of these stages you can you can leverage all uh, psychological factors to make the you know push people you know trigger those behaviors and I think uh, it was just absolutely wonderful to see al Bandura talk about observational learning and using telenovelas to do that yeah
0: very nice anything else we should talk about before we finish up
3: no I think you know what what are just I mean I, I wish we could dig that talk up and you know yeah. and things like that but uh, he's going strong and I think moral engagement and disengagement uh, watch for that if you haven't looked at his new stuff on how is it that people can morally disengage and maybe this is a really good time to think about that question when you see a lot of morally questionable, activities going on on the national stage, and you go, how can people just let that be? Well, Al Bandura may have some answers.
0: It's almost like you've been paying attention to the news where there was a massive cheating scandal. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. We're <laughs> getting Elite get, colleges, let me tell yeah, you. I looked yeah. at that
3: list of elite colleges. Oof. Yikes. Yeah.
0: So broke, news broke yesterday yeah. about yeah. them. Variety of wealthy people doing bad,
3: bad things. Bad, bad so, things.
0: All right, so when we come back, we've got our final segment coming up an interview with Dr. Sawa Senzaki about the cross cultural implications of Bandura's work.
1: Up next, we have Dr. Sawa Senzaki, who is a cultural psychologist in our psychology department, and she also runs the Culture and Development Lab on campus where she works with young children.
4: Thank you, Taylor.
0: So how's it going, Sawa?
4: Good. How are you guys?
0: We're doing, doing all right. Excellent. So the first, before we get into the, the stuff I actually asked you in advance and mm-hmm. told you I was going to talk about <laughs> yes. it, we're going to throw the question, the unexpected question at right. you, which is the thing we're asking everyone, which is where did you first, do you remember where you first learned about the Doll study and and what how, what? how did you react to it at the time?
4: Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was in a classroom, was... Dr. Carol at UW Superior. Right. Um shout out for Dr. Carol right. at <laughs> UW Superior Psychology Department. Um and yeah, it was just super interesting to learn about it's it's a it's something that you think about, but it's just nice to see scientific study and learning about the behind the mechanisms behind that.
0: Right. Uh. Yes, very nice. So hmm. We, one of the things we want to know about really is sort of what are the cross-cultural implications of this study, has it been replicated, just kind of tackling things from that perspective.
4: Yes, yeah, so I was thinking about that <laughs> and based on my knowledge right now, I don't know there are too many studies replicating this study, but um, I know that modeling and imitation work very similarly across cultures I mean, even with very young infants, like some weeks-old babies can imitate and look at other people's behaviors. So I think it's a pretty universal behaviors of the human.
0: So uh, tell us about that, about what we see from infants. Right,
4: yeah. So I was thinking about it more kind of from the perspective of it is a cultural, psychological perspective. But um, So this modeling and imitation is such strong strong um, characteristics of the humans. And it's actually very important in the way that um, differentiates human compared to non-human animals. Because humans, the way that humans imitate is just really very strong, very quick. Um, and, and the humans can use some cues, like prestige cues. Some people who are more prestigious are more likely to be muddled hmm. um, than others. Uh, humans are also more likely to imitate others who have similar kind of a social network so there are some really interesting studies looking at um that you know across different regions of the u.s different parts of the uh, states people use that how do you call uh, like soft drinks how would you call it Oh, soda? So.
0: I, I call it soda, okay. but I think from where I'm from, it's typically called
4: pop. Yeah, I call yeah. it pop. But um, so there's actually a map of the US you can look at like specific mm-hmm. even not just the states, but even like a county level. Mm-hmm. And that has very um, strong correlation with religious practice in hmm. the US. So it's kind of like it was in the same network. People huh. are more likely to imitate others in that similar social network than others. Um, yeah, but I'm sorry. That was not really about infants, yeah, <laughs> I realize. It
0: okay. <laughs> um, no, it's all right. So I'm curious, how how do they research that in infants? Like, how do yes, you how do they yes. study that?
4: Right? So I was really excited when my kids were born because it's like, okay, I have three <laughs> weeks old babies. I don't usually get to ha- <laughs> carry those babies at <laughs> right. this age. So I was really excited. And my kids didn't really um, – neither of my kids did it. But um, the easiest one is, like, you um, – it's like tongue, like, you, like mm-hmm. I, you just put your tongues out or right. different mouse movements and actions and okay. infants can imitate that. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and they, we talk about that a little bit, about like how kids learn how to smile right. and things like that, mm-hmm. which is innate, but yeah. also learning kind of, uh, but, but we see social smiling right. happening relatively yes. early, mm-hmm. what, five, yeah, six four, weeks, yeah. something, yeah. Yeah, maybe from, even yeah, earlier?
4: Yeah, a couple months or so, yeah.
0: Yeah, so... Um, which is really uh, interesting to see. I mean, and, you know, so I think you both know this. My kids are adopted, and so I never, I never got the like, oh, they look just like you, uh-huh. right? Because they don't. Um, however, one of the things I noticed uh-huh. really early on is how quickly they picked up on mannerisms, yes. you know, and that they would stand in right. the exact same way right. I stand sometimes, mm-hmm. or they yes. would, and and yes. so much of that is obviously right. in that case, you uh-huh. know, modeling. Yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah.
4: very cool, and. Clearly, you are the prestige person at that time, at least, so that's good, right? Tina Tina doesn't (laughs) listen to the show, so it's okay to (laughs) say that.
0: (laughs) um, Very cool. Well, as we finish up here, is there anything else we should know about this? Anything else you want to tell us about?
4: Well, yeah, so I just want to go back to the point that I think the imitation and sometimes modeling can... Go to, you know, like modeling not so good behaviors, but right. uh, but it really is a big um, difference compared to other animals in a way that if we think about like survival of humans, humans can really live in any part of the world, but that's really because we can model other people's behaviors, um, and that really allows us to. Pull our cognitive resources together, and we can learn from other people, and we can kind of share knowledge together. And I think that's a really, really neat feature mm-hmm. of the human.
0: Yeah. So it's this. Ad- I don't know that we've. I've ever necessarily thought of modeling as this adaptive mm-hmm. survival yes. mechanism mm. that has this, you know, evolutionary value. Right. But it. It, okay. it apparently it does. Yes. Very yeah. good thank you so very much for being here i really appreciate it do you have anything to add taylor as we finish up
1: no it sounds good thank you again thank you awesome
0: and that will do it for this three-part deep dive into the famous bobo doll studies taylor before we go do you have any final thoughts anything to add
1: i i can just say i've learned a ton while doing these episodes um i've my eyes have been open to see how much modeling there is mm-hmm. in different areas of everyday life.
0: You know, me too. And I, I feel like I've actually studied a lot of this before, mm-hmm. but I think that just like putting it all together this way has really been important, you know, and and, and for me and thinking about a lot of this all sort of tied together and in conjunction. And some of it, I mean, some of it was certainly new mm-hmm. to me, even, even having studied it, but some of it wasn't necessarily new, but just, I guess I'm rethinking about mm-hmm. it, which is important. So special thanks to all of our guests in this episode, doctors Georgina Wilson-Dungis, Sawa Senzaki, Regan A. Garong. It was a pleasure talking with all of you. I also want to thank you, Taylor, for taking this fascinating journey with me. This has been a lot of fun, and I've appreciated everything you've done. So. And I want to thank you too, listeners, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you've learned some things, and we hope you'll tell us what you think by finding us on Facebook. That is Psychology and Stuff on Facebook or Twitter, Psych and Stuff. We want to hear your thoughts. I also want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, her intern, Preston Fisher, and our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlice. Make sure to join us for the rest of Psych Week, brought to you by Bell & Psychiatric by visiting uwgb.edu slash psychweek. Until then, keep being amazing.